You're listening to the Grace Point Northwest podcast. We hope that you will be encouraged and built up in your relationship with Jesus as you hear the preaching and teaching of God's Word. If Grace Point Northwest is not your home church, it is our heart that this podcast will be supplemental and not a substitute to you belonging to a local church in your community. If we can help you get connected to a church in your community, please let us know. Now we hope you enjoy this message from our Sunday gathering. Hey, good morning, Grace Point. How are we doing? All right, cool. So you just got a quick update of what we're going to be talking about here today. But before we dive into that, I want to give you guys a couple of announcements real quick, just so you know what's going on here in the next coming weeks. First one is this. You heard Kylie talk about it on December 24th. We're going to be meeting right here at Betsy Rhodes Elementary School for our first ever Christmas Eve gathering. And so we're going to be meeting at 630. It's going to be about a 45 minute to an hour long gathering. Uh, It's going to be family style. So that means we will have crayons and markers, not markers, crayons and papers for kids. Also, we're going to be doing a candle lit like gathering. And so just so you know, everybody that's like maybe like three, four and under is going to get a candy cane, but everybody else gets to hold fire. Okay. So you're like, yeah. So so it'll be a great opportunity to invite friends and family. If they've never been to church, come check it out. It's going to be great. Also, that following Sunday on December 30th, we are not able to meet here at Betsy Rhodes. So what we're going to be doing is we're going to be meeting over at Peterson Behavioral Academy. We've met there before. Some of you guys might remember that. So we'll be meeting over there at 10 a.m. So on December 30th, we'll be meeting at Peterson. Where are we going to be meeting on December 30th? Man, you guys are awake. Good. Cool. All right. So this morning, we're going to be continuing our series called Advent. And if you remember, Advent is just simply a Latin term that means coming or arrival. This morning, you and I here at this Grace Point Northwest get to join people all over the valley, all over the world in remembering Jesus's first coming while joyfully anticipating his second coming. And what we are going to learn about today in the text is this, is that God is going to make outsiders, insiders, through his redeemer. Let me say that again. God makes outsiders, insiders, through his redeemer. Who in here has ever found themselves in a place they knew they didn't belong? Maybe you showed up to something and after just a few minutes, you quickly realized, I don't belong here. Anybody? Or am I the only one? Okay. So this happened to me when I was in college. My dad worked for Tri-County Ford Mercury in LaGrange, Kentucky. He was a service manager. And as a service manager, he would oftentimes win prizes and rewards and stuff like that. And so he ended up winning a couple of tickets to go to Carburation Day at the Indy 500. Some of you are like, what in the world is that? That's exactly what I said. My dad basically looked at me and said, hey, you want to go to Carburation Day? I was like, sure. He goes, you get out of school? Sure, that's even better. Let's go. And so we go up there. It's an event that takes place before the big race. And it's an opportunity for fans and, and people just to gather around the cars, gather around the people, the racers and all that, and just learn, have an up-close personal experience with what's going on. Now, my dad belonged there. Here's why. My dad's a mechanic. He's literally a car whisperer. I remember shortly after moving here to Las Vegas, I had a problem with my car. He was down in Arizona. I called him up. I was like, I don't know how, what, what to do with it. I don't know what's wrong. He said, hold your phone up to your car. And I did. And he told me what was wrong with it. And he was right. I mean, the guy's amazing. Now me, not so amazing. I don't know what, I could barely tell you what a socket wrench is. I don't know outside of basic car maintenance, like changing oil, maybe brakes on a good day. You wouldn't want me changing yours, but, but that's just me. And so we're sitting there at this race, walking around. Dad knows the racers. He knows the the places to go. And I knew nothing. 
He was an insider, I was an outsider, but because I was with him, I became an insider that day. I got to go to the refreshment stands, I got to go to the garages, I got to walk out on the track, I got to be up close to the cars and the racers because I was with him. You see, in our story, Ruth is an outsider. And she's not just any outsider. She's not like I was at the Indianapolis 500. You might remember that Ruth is a Moabite. And we know historically that Moabites were the enemies of Israel. So we see that Ruth is from an enemy people and that she is an outsider of the worst sorts. Yet what God is going to do is he's going to take this outsider and make her an insider through a redeemer. So look at chapter 3, verse 1. It says this, Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may go well with you? Is not Boaz our relative, with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Now there's a lot of things going on in this chapter that you and I just won't understand because we're not in this time. It's not like a one-for-one cultural experience, if you will. So let me try to explain what's going on here. You might remember from last week that Ruth just so happened to wander into Boaz's field. Now, just so happened needs to be in quotations because what the reader understands is she didn't just happen to go in there by chance, but God is actually working behind the scenes orchestrating something. She goes into this field and she's able to gather up about 30 to 40 pounds of grain and she takes it back to Naomi, which shows you Ruth can handle herself, right? I mean, she's not a weak woman. We're going to discover here in a little bit, she's going to be carrying around an 80-pound sack, okay? You try to go up to her and like, she'll knock you out, okay? That's just who she is, right? She's tough. And she goes back to Naomi with this grain, and we see that Naomi just gets ecstatic, just, just overjoyed. Why? Because she has bread? No. We find out that she's ecstatic, that she's overjoyed because of whose field Ruth had been gleaning in, gathering grain in, and whose field was it? Boaz. You see, she says Boaz is a redeemer. And he's not just any redeemer. He's from the family of her husband, Elimelech, who has passed away. And a redeemer, a kinsman redeemer, was obligated, according to Old Testament law, to buy back relatives from debt and slavery. And in some instances, they were even required to marry deceased brother's childless widow to ensure that the inheritance would stay in the family. And when Naomi hears about Boaz and his relationship with her family, she begins to have hope. Why? Because God hasn't forgotten her. You might remember when she comes back into the city, she comes back into Bethlehem, what does she say? My name is Mara. I'm bitter. But now she starts to see the sweet kindness of God because God is not against her like she thought. And it's at this point in the story, if you and I were just reading it straight through, we would wonder why then, If this is what's going on, why in the world is Ruth still with her mother-in-law? You see, from chapter 2 to chapter 3, about six to seven weeks have passed. And Boaz is obviously interested in Ruth, but he hasn't done anything. A professor of mine says Boaz is oftentimes like a lot of men. He said, you know, a dog looks really cool when it's chasing a car, right? It's barking, it's running after it, but it doesn't know what it would do if it caught it. In the same way, we have Boaz kind of in a similar situation. He's looking all cool, right? He's looking all just nice and wealthy and known and helpful and all that throughout this, but he doesn't know what to do here. 
And so what does Naomi do? She tries to speed it up a little bit by being a matchmaker. She looks at them and she says, hey, you know where Boaz is going to be tonight. And Ruth, you know that I'm for your good. Because you remember back to chapter one, what did she tell Ruth to do? To stay in Moab. Why? So that she could have rest in the household of her husband. And here she says, Ruth, I'm still trying to pursue your rest. I'm still for your good. And here's what I know, Ruth, you need a man. And I know just the man that you need. And so she concocts this plan where Boaz is going to be at the threshing floor, which is a stone slab on top of a hill. And what would happen is at the end of the day, all the barley would be taken to the top of this hill and it would be laid out on the stone slab where oxen would come and tread over it, separating the grain from the shaft. And then what workers would do is they would take a pitchfork and they would stand on that stone slab and they would start to throw this stuff up into the air. And as the wind would come through, it would separate that grain from that shaft and the grain would fall to the ground and the shaft would blow away. It's the practice called winnowing. And she said, this is where he will be. This is what he will be doing tonight. And guess what? Ruth, you'll be able to get his attention then. You see, Boaz is a hard worker. He's been working in the fields. He's been out all day. And oftentimes what would happen is after that winnowing process, what the workers would do is they would tend to take a nap or sleep on that grain to protect it at night. And it was at this time that Ruth was to approach, to approach Boaz to talk to him. And I remember a few years ago, it's just kind of similar to a few years ago when I was at my house. I remember there was a day specifically in which my wife and I were so busy, she needed to talk to me, but we, I was so busy running in and out of the house from meeting to meeting that she knew she couldn't get my attention at any point during the day. But somehow along the way in the conversation, she heard me say this, there's a Kentucky game on tonight. And I remember sitting down about ready to watch that Kentucky game when she approached me and said, hey, I need to talk to you about something really important. Why did she do it then? Because she knew I would be available. Why does Naomi say, Ruth, go at this time? Because she knows Boaz will be available. But how she tells Ruth to approach Boaz is a little bit awkward. Listen to what she says. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. Verse 4. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. That is so important for about what she's about to do, okay? Then go and uncover his feet, which is just nasty, and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. Verse 5. And she replied, all that you say I will do. Verse 6, so she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. Now Naomi looks at Ruth and she essentially says to her, you need to clean yourself up. But she doesn't just tell her to clean up in any sort of particular way. She says you need to clean yourself up in a way that you're presenting yourself as available, that you are taking the posture of a bride preparing for her wedding. In the Old Testament, to wash and to anoint oneself was to declare to all those around you that you are no longer in a place of mourning, but moving on. We see this in 2 Samuel chapter 12, where David grieves the death of his son. 
And it says, after he had finished the time of grieving the death of his son, he washed himself, he anointed himself in oil, he put on the best clothes to signify that he was moving on from mourning the death of his son. It's possible that Ruth was displaying this mourning posture as she was walking around in the field. And that could have been the reason why Boaz didn't approach her. But it's obviously the reason why Naomi basically looks at her and says, hey, it's time to clean up. It's time to put on some nice clothes. You need to put on that fragrant, whatever, Dead Sea, Desire, whatever it is. And, and you need to go present yourself to Boaz. Now, why does she have to lay down at his feet? I don't know. I read so much this week on, about feet. And personally, I'm disgusted by feet. And if you think of the context, these guys are out in the fields and then they're winnowing. Those feet are nasty. Why in the world would she go lay down next to him? Probably the best thing I heard that people believe culturally that what she was doing was expressing her dependence upon him. And what we will see here in a second is that she proposes marriage to him. The one command that is absolutely clear that Naomi gives is that she needs to observe. Observe what? Where he lays down. Because she doesn't just want to go lay down and do this next to any man. Okay? What is important to see, I think, in this text so far, and I think we'd be mistaken if we overlooked it, is the character of Boaz throughout this story. Much of what I've read this week talked about how Naomi's plan was ridiculous, that it was unsafe because it wasn't uncommon for women of the night to go to the threshing floor. And people were saying, well, what if Boaz misinterpreted her, her intentions? What if he sought to take advantage of her? Yet at no point in this entire book do we ever see the character of Boaz in question or the character of Ruth for that matter? If anything, I believe what we are seeing is Boaz is pointing to a greater redeemer who would come. You see, Naomi trusts Boaz. She knows that Boaz isn't the type of guy that says, hey, I took you out for a nice dinner. We had some good conversation. Now, what are you going to do for me? That's not who Boaz is. If anything, Boaz is a man who not only loves God, but is passionate about keeping the law of God. In Leviticus chapter 23, verse 22, there were laws for landowners. And landowners were allowed to take the grain from their field, but they weren't supposed to be so greedy and stingy that they took the grain from the outside of the field. What were they supposed to leave the outside of the field for? The foreigner, the sojourner, the poor that would come amongst them. But what we saw last week when Pastor Tim taught is Boaz wasn't the type of guy that just did the, the bottom of the law, right? He didn't just do what he could do just to get by. But Boaz was the type of man who had a character not only to obey the law, but to exceed the law. How do we know this? Because last week, do you remember what he told Ruth to do? He said, Ruth, you don't glean from the outside of the field. Ruth, I want you to go and I want you to glean with the reapers, I want you to go glean with those who are hired. I want you to pick the best grain, if you will. He goes on to say to his workers, you see Ruth over there? Here's what I, here's what I want you to pay attention to. You protect her. You don't hurt her. He looked out for her. He also allowed her to drink water and to eat with his reapers, showing her that she would basically belong to the household. You see, Boaz was not the type of guy who just did the mere minimum. Rather, Boaz was the type of guy who went above and beyond. And what you and I are going to see as we get to the end of this 
is that Boaz is not somebody that we are to look to to emulate, but rather we are to look to Boaz as one who is pointing to a greater one to come. Because Boaz is going to have a great, great, great grandchild who's not just going to exceed the law, but he's going to keep the law perfectly and he's going to die for those who did not. That's where Advent comes in through this story. Now Ruth does what Naomi tells her to do, but we also see that she deviates from the plan. She lies down next to Boaz's feet, but when she lies down next to Boaz's feet, who did Naomi say would do the talking? Boaz. Yeah, what we're going to see is that Ruth doesn't give Boaz a whole lot of time to talk. Okay, so check it out. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk, and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and covered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, that's just, man, that's like so underappreciating probably what he did. Oh, he was startled. No, he wasn't. Startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Now Ruth waits until Boaz is done eating, because he's just not the same when he's hungry, right? And so she goes, and she waits, she's watching. I can almost picture her looking at this threshing floor, watching, looking, saying, okay, there he is. Oh, I lost him behind there. Where'd he go? Where'd he go? Okay, he's over here. And so when he lays down, she approaches him, pulls back the covers to expose his feet. The Hebrew word implies even the legs. Now imagine with me, you're Boaz. You're laying there. You're protecting your grain. You've worked hard all day for this. And about 2 a.m., your feet start to get a little cold. And so you go to pull the covers back up, realizing they're stuck. You cannot get them, only to open your eyes to look down to see there is a woman staring right back at you who is hogging all the covers. To say the man was startled is an understatement, right? I mean, many of us know what it feels like to take a nap on the couch only to be awakened with your kids staring right at you wanting to play. Or if, maybe if you don't have kids, I've had my dog Lucy do this. Just stare right at me. And I'm startled. Boaz rightly asks her, who are you? And she says, I'm your servant. What is important to see here, and I just want to slow down because we need to grasp this to understand the story, is that she uses a different word for servant in chapter 3 than she did in chapter 2. You see, in chapter 2, the word she used for servant was a slave servant. But here, the word for servant, she used, the word she uses implies a maidservant. And what is significant between those two? Maidservants were allowed to marry, and they were allowed to have children. But she doesn't just stop with that. I'm Ruth, your servant. She keeps on talking. And she says, spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. To, to say, to spread your wings over your, ser your servant, was basically an idiom for marriage. I can almost think that what Ruth is doing here is kind of quoting what we would know as the aspiring philosopher Beyonce. And she's essentially saying, if you like it, put a ring on it. That's what she's doing. She's saying, if you want this, then I propose you make this official. And you might recall back in chapter 2 that Boaz is a man of prayer and he prayed over Ruth. And he prayed that God would do what? Spread his wing of protection over her. And it's almost as if Ruth is looking at Boaz and saying, Bo, you remember that time you prayed the Lord would take me under your wings? Well, Naomi and I have been talking, 
and thinking about that, and we think that the Lord is going to take me under his wing, and we think the Lord is going to use you to do it. You are the Lord's wing to me. Nowhere in this text, and I just want to be clear because of what I've read this week, nowhere in this text is Ruth suggesting that they just sleep together. Rather, what she is suggesting is that they spend the rest of their lives together. Think about this. A Moabite woman just asked an Israelite man to propose to her. She is an outsider asking a redeemer to make her a what? An insider. She looks at this redeemer and she says, please make me your own. And that is the prayer that many of us have prayed, not just during this time of the year, but we pray this all the time that we look to the great Redeemer to come, just like Ruth is looking at Boaz, and we look at this Redeemer and we say what? Please make me your own. You see, Jesus is the greater Boaz who's going to cover all those who cry out to him with his righteousness, just as a husband would cover his bride. You and I make the same cry, not to Boaz, but to Jesus. Make me your own. And so how does Boaz respond to this? One would think because he's an Israelite man and she's a Moabite woman, he should rebuke her, right? He should kick her out, kick her out of the field. But listen to what he says. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first and that you have gone, not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. One would expect that this Israelite man would shun this woman, but he doesn't do that. That's not Boaz. He doesn't rebuke her and he doesn't take advantage of her. If you remember, this is during the time of the judges where everybody was doing what was right in their own eyes. Rather, what Boaz does is he prays with her, prays for her instead of sinning with her, and he praises who she is. And what this shows us is, again, the humility of this Redeemer. Boaz is kind of a big deal. People know him. He's wealthy. He has land. Yet he is not impressed with either one of these things. He looks at Ruth and he praises her. Why? Because he's not impressed with who he is. He praises her because she's like, you would go after the younger men. You should go after the younger men. But you choose me. You come after me. He quotes Proverbs 31 to her. And in the Hebrew Bible, the book of Ruth follows the very last chapter of Proverbs. And in Proverbs 31, what is it all about? We don't have time to unpack it, but just quickly, it is this. It's all about a godly woman. That is talking about a woman who is honored by God, who is praised by the townspeople because of her character. And what Boaz does is he looks at this Moabite woman who's supposed to be an outsider and he says, you have the characteristics of one of the godliest women in all of the Bible. And we know that because what does she do? She's taking care of her mother-in-law. She's working hard. She's kind. And I think that's an aspect, just a little application for us men in this room. We should be the ones who champion and praise our wives, right? He looks at her and says, your character is amazing. So much so that all the townspeople are praising you. But because Boaz is such a man who keeps high regard of the law, he looks at her and says, yet 
there's an exception here. Listen to what goes on, verse 12. And now it is true that I am a redeemer. You are yet, there is a redeemer nearer than I. Verse 13, remember tonight and in the morning, if he will redeem you, good. Let him do, or remain tonight and in the morning, if he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until morning. It is true that Boaz is a redeemer, but there's a redeemer who is closer in relationship and has first rights. And you could almost picture the situation here where here is Ruth looking at him saying, he's willing to do this, but then he throws in a but. But there is somebody else who is nearer in relationship with you. This person has first rights. This person is the one who is truly obligated to do this, right? But if he won't do it, then guess what? I will do it. And I love the assurance that he gives her. He says he will approach this man in the morning, and if he is not overjoyed to fulfill this task, then he swears by God himself, he will not rest until he fulfills the vow. And then he looks at Ruth and says, lie down and rest. Now, I think that's hilarious because there's nobody resting in the story. You got Boaz, who is laying there for the rest of the night with a woman at his feet, probably thinking, what if the other guy says he wants to do it? We know from the story, Boaz digs her, right? He's into her, like he, he likes her. But then I can't help but to think, he's got to be thinking in the back of his head, she's a Moabite, I'm an Israelite. What's this going to cost me socially, relationally? politically even. And then you think about Ruth. She's laying there. And I don't know any woman that would be laying there just sleeping like, oh, this is wonderful. She's got to be wondering, what if the guy says yes? I want Boaz. Who is going to be my husband tomorrow? What I think is important for you and I to see in this is again the character of this Redeemer that Boaz really legally is not obligated to do anything that he is pledging. Somebody else, that is their responsibility. But is it really Boaz's responsibility? No. Yet he graciously says, I will do this. He's willing to sacrifice social and financial harm to take this woman into her home. What does Boaz really gain from this? Nothing. What does she gain? Everything. Does that not point to a greater Redeemer who is to come? Even though he's not obligated, Boaz goes above and beyond to protect Ruth. Look at verse 14. So she lay at his feet until morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. So he's trying to protect her reputation. And he said, bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city. Just again, Boaz is the man. Like he is the man. He looks at her and says, I don't want any sort of whisper, harm coming to your reputation. So before anybody awakes, in order to protect her, what does he do? He sends her out. And he does not send her out empty-handed but he provides for her yet again an upwards to 80 pounds of grain. 
And this woman crossfits this thing all the way back to her house. It is so impressive to me, the strength of Ruth. And he looks at her and he says, hey, you can trust me that I'm good for my word. I don't have a ring, but I have a biscuit, (laughs) okay? And so as God is my witness, I will fulfill this. And so Ruth heads back home to Naomi with the news. And we see in verse 16, we read this. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, how did you fare, my daughter? You can almost picture Naomi is up all night as well. She just sent her daughter-in-law out into this threshing floor, right? What would have come of this? I could just imagine she was just up all night stressed out. And then she told her all that the man had done, saying, these six measures of barley he gave to me. For he said to me, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. Boaz is looking out for his mother-in-law too. And that's something else I think the men in the room could take as an application. She replied, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out. For the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. Boaz will do what he says. You see, Naomi came back to Bethlehem empty. That's what chapter one tells us. She went away full and the Lord has brought her back to empty. Now through Boaz, through a redeemer, God is going to make her full again. And it is throughout this entire story that I believe you and I are to focus on another redeemer, a greater redeemer that God will use to make you and I full. You see, several times throughout this, I've shared that he had a grandson. He had a grandson. There's another redeemer to come. And that is absolutely true, that the great, great grandson of this relationship is the God-man Jesus. And you see, everything that is said of Boaz in this story can be said of Jesus a thousand times more. There's an old uh, preacher by the name of Charles Spurgeon who had an awesome beard. I'm envious of his beard. I want it for Christmas, but I'll never get it, okay? But he said this. He said, Jesus is our great Boaz. And that's just a fun thing to say, okay? But he is our great Boaz. How? You've got to think about it. In order to be a redeemer, it required three things. Be related by blood, able to pay the price, and willing to redeem. And what do we celebrate during this first advent that Jesus came and put skin on? Human blood running through his veins to become like us so that he could redeem us. And we see that he is the only one who could truly pay the price. Because what does Hebrews tell you and me? That the blood of bulls and goats is not sufficient. The entire Old Testament sacrificial system, that bloody day, Yom Kippur, once a year, where they would go in and offer the sacrifice for the people, was not sufficient. But every single year rolled forward to a greater advent, to a greater coming of the God-man who would once and for all pay the price because he could. And we see that he was willing. In John 10, 10, what does Jesus say? I lay down my life. I pick it up. No one takes it from me. When he's in the garden of Gethsemane and he's there and Luke tells us he is sweating drops of blood because of the stressful moment that he was about to endure. And I don't believe it was necessarily the crucifixion. Because there are so many men in church history who took on death with greater boldness than it appears Jesus did. Why is that? It's because Jesus took something on during his crucifixion. They didn't have to. And what was that? The full weight and wrath of God for your sin and my sin. He says it is the cup that he has to drink. He says, Father, if there's any other way, I don't have to drink of this cup. What does that cup represent? You've heard me say it. 
the wrath of God throughout the Old Testament, that Jesus drank that so you and I didn't have to. He not only became like us, he's not only able to pay the price, but what does he say? Father, not my will, your will be done. And he goes to the cross for you and for me, and he saves us without a scrap of our assistance. This is the advent you and I are to celebrate this Christmas. That Jesus, the God-man, moved into the neighborhood, put skin on, lived a perfect life, succeeded even where Boaz failed to be the only redeemer who can truly save our souls. Boaz points to Jesus. Naomi and Ruth point to us. And so this Christmas, why not be more like Ruth and just fall at the feet of Jesus and say, make me your own today. Make me your own today. Let's pray.